You're listening to the Doc Lounge Podcast. This is a place for candid healthcare conversations with physician recruitment industries, top executives, and thought leaders. This podcast is made possible by Pacific Companies, your trusted advisor in physician recruitment. My name is Summer Gilbert, and I am the Director of Marketing and Branding here at Pacific Companies. And sitting next to me today, I have my colleague, Chris Call, Executive Vice President of Training here at Pacific Companies. Today on the podcast, we have Cassandra Karn and Jen Swisher, both physician assistants for a large hospital here in Orange County, California. We're going to chat with them today about why they chose the PA route, work-life balance as a PA, what it's like working in the emergency department, autonomy, burnout, and we're going to get two different perspectives because we have Jen, who's newer to the industry, and then Cassandra, who's been a PA for many years. So super excited to have them on the podcast. Thank you guys so much for taking time to be here in the studio today. So not remote today. They're actually sitting beside us. Thank you guys for being here. Thanks for having having us. Yeah. Uh, and let's get started. All right. Well, ladies, welcome. Uh, why don't you each of you tell us a little bit about how you got to where you're at and why you want to become a physician assistant? Okay, well, I'll start. Um, well, it was quite a road. I was a biology major at UCI, and then when I got out, I didn't want to do anything having necessarily to do with research or biology. So I kicked around for a while, and then my dad kind of took hold of me, and he had a good friend that was in the Army named Ron Broughton, who was a PA at Herman Hospital, and he said, come on out and see what I do, and I just went in, and I absolutely loved it, and I went home and got a job on an ambulance and went to PA school, and that was about it. That's awesome. Um, Jen here, but I, um, my road was in high school. I dated a guy whose mom was a pediatrician and just thought it was cool that she worked with kids, had no idea really what medicine was, and um, more or less just said I was going to be a doctor at that point. I went to UC Irvine undergraduate as well and did a public health major. And while I was there, I was volunteering at Hogue Hospital at the time, and they opened their very first Scribe program there with Scribe America, and they said, hey, you can come downstairs to the ER and work as a Scribe and get paid, and you don't have to do any of the gross work, and you can kind of just hang out with the doctors. So I did that, and a year into having um, been a Scribe, they started hiring PAs for the first time at Hogue, and so I was able to work alongside them for the first time and Scribe for them personally and get to know them. And, um, you know, when I came down to a decision between medical school and PA school, a lot of the ER docs that I worked with had actually encouraged me to go to PA school because I'd have better work-life balance as a mom, things like that. And then I knew I'd probably have a little bit better choice of what school I wanted to go to to be able to stay into Southern California. And, um, you know, it's kind of his history after that. I took about a year off after undergrad, went into pharmaceutical sales to kind of just really racked my brain because I was having a really hard decision making between medical school and PA school. And then I just kind of, it came to me. There, there, the rest is history. So was the, your work as a scribe in the ER the impetus to be in the ER? Was there some other? Yes, I joke. Um, I tried to avoid the ER, actually, for the first few years that I gra- after I graduated uh, PA school. I had worked as a scribe for almost five years because of my entire undergrad, and then I worked for a little bit after pharmaceutical sales. I went back into setting up my own scribe programs in New Jersey and Chicago um, and training and hiring and recruiting. And so I had already kind of just felt a little burned out from the ER and wasn't 
wasn't sure that I'd be utilized to my potential as a PA. So I went into surgery for a couple of years. And then um, when I was trying to look for a better balance um, after having kids and not wanting to work five days a week or have o- long OR hours um, or take work home with me, the ER found me again and it felt like home. Like I was just like, well, this is, why did I try avoiding it? I've always been an ER girl. So. What about you, Cassandra? I was always an ER girl too. I got my clinical hours on an ambulance, so I was familiar with it. And I don't know, I never strayed from it. I just love it. I think all the time, what else would I go into? And I just can't imagine. Okay. Now, working in the ER, ladies, tell us about some of the maybe autonomy you may or may not have with certain types of uh, cases you see. We are fairly autonomous. Um, I think it's really up to us, and that's one of the best things about the ER. We work side by side with multiple physicians, multiple specialties, but if we see a case and we feel comfortable with it, then we can finish that case. I have a lot of experience. I've worked 17 years in the emergency department, so I think at this point I know, is this something that's tricky? Am I worried about something? I just go and get one of the physicians. We can get specialists involved, but if it's a cold or a cough and I've seen it it's an abdominal pain then I can work it up and feel comfortable with it yeah I agree yeah I think it kind of depends on the supervising physician that you're working with and their you know their comfort level with working PAs Um, I've noticed that some of them have worked with PAs for a long time and they're super comfortable with the relationship and kind of letting us um, you know have that autonomy and some of them are a little bit newer to the game and want to have a little bit more um, just you know back and forth with discussing the cases and things to that nature so and I think it has to do with the confidence level of the PA and the case um, if it's pretty straightforward and it's something we've seen a lot of times then there's really no need to kind of have that collaboration but um, otherwise yeah it's it, it, I, I think we have a lot of autonomy within the scope of what we do. Yeah. Do you ever notice any um, resistance from doctors working with PAs? Not in our department specifically and with like who we work with. I think they're all pretty well versed with how to work with us. I'd say majority wise. I'd say when some of the specialists come in and they're not familiar or they don't have their own PAs, we can meet a little bit of resistance there where they're just not quite sure where we fit into it or, you know, they may want to speak, you know, specifically with a physician. Um, yeah. But I would say the, the docs we work with were treated like peers. Yeah. Yeah. And it's definitely, I think, based on the age and how long that the physician has been practicing. When a lot of these physicians started practicing, there were no PAs. They didn't know about PAs. They don't know what to make of PAs, and they're still not comfortable with them. But all the newer physicians are, they've worked with physician assistants, and they understand But I am hoping even the older physicians, as we work with them, they become more and more comfortable. I see that. Right. And And we have a couple of our senior guys that love it. Yeah. So definitely. In the ED, uh, how is it determined if you work in the actual emergency area or maybe a fast track or urgent care? You just rotate through. Yeah, it's, it depends on the shifts for us. Yeah. So um, each shift is kind of assigned to a different area. So it just depends on which shift you're on that day, whether or not you're in the more acute side versus more of the fast track side. We also have um, a position out in um, the lobby because we have um, a bed shortage issue. And so it's a way that we've tried to circumvent some of the uh, volume that we have with patient load. So um, you'll find us kind of almost everywhere in the emergency department, depending on the shift and where we're assigned that day. Yeah. And for people listening in, what can you give them a, a couple reasons, maybe the, the 
top two or three reasons or advantages of being in the ED or maybe some challenges that, so if they're choosing a potential career in the ED, they can understand what they're getting into. Well, the ED is just the best. <laughs> no bias. I think about it all the time. No bias. I love the emergency department. And I think it's uh, fast-paced. It's dramatic. You Every day, I see something crazy. Just last shift, I saw something. You have to be willing to go to the books and look stuff up even while you're working. People come in. You don't know everything. You're not a specialist, but you see everything. And... I don't it's just it's fun yeah jack of all trades master of none is what they joke about (laughs) but um yeah I'd say that you you know if you're kind of an adrenaline junkie or Mm -hmm. you um don't like monotony that's where the emergency department fits well for you because you just really don't know what's going to work you know walk in the door I think some of the challenges that I've noticed from some colleagues and talking to them and I think I've been very aware of it from since I've like kind of been in emergency medicine now as a PA for almost three years is um, burnout. So I think a lot of people mm-hmm. work too many shifts and they'll, you know, it's very easy to kind of pick up the hours to make some extra money. And what people don't realize is they burn out very easily that way. So I've been very protective and not working more than three days a week or 12 shifts a month, which um, I think you have to find a facility that is flexible and respects your time in that manner. Mm-hmm. So I think that can be one of the challenges with emergency medicine. I think the other thing too is um, you have to be willing to subscribe to working you know nights and weekends and holidays Mm -hmm. some people will um, work more hours in a week in order to kind of have their um, time frame lined up with their kids school schedule or something to that nature but I I personally work night shifts and that's so I can be home during the day with my kids Um, and you know you do have to be away for some of those holidays so well I was just gonna say I think people who are extroverts that love talking to people do really well in the ER. And you have to be comfortable with dealing with huge swings of emotion from intense anger to the worst sadness you'll ever see. And that goes to not working too many shifts because you really need to be able to do a lot of self-care because you're going to come home and have to process that. And obviously other specialties as well, but I think other specialties are, yeah, yeah. And there's a little more shelter Um, just with other staff and other specialties and you're kind of the one out there front and center and dealing with it all so yeah so because you know I think people that don't love that burn out easier as well if you had to pick another specialty what would be your second choice I love pediatric subspecialties like I I like working with kids I think they're an innocent population that um, you know a lot of times I feel like with their disease processes, they didn't. Do, it's to no fault of their own. Um, I think they're really resilient, and um, I think it's kind of neat that you have to take care of kids differently. They're not just li- you know little adults. Yeah. So, um, and I trained and did specialty training with um, at, at Children's Hospital Los Angeles, and so that's always been a passion of mine and why I actually like the facility we work at because a lot of the work we do is with the Children's Hospital along with our emergency department. It's funny because I was going to say geriatrics. <laughs> yeah. They're cute. They're cute in a different way. <laughs> Not always so innocent, but I'm drawn towards that. I think that might be my next thing, actually. Yeah, they have good stories. They've been around the block. They're fun to talk to. Do you all have any insights for people considering uh, going to PA school? 
I would say just shadow PAs and really get to know what we're doing. I think that some people get into it and think, oh, it's just essentially uh, medical school light um, that I can be, it's like being a doctor but not having to go to school as long. But I think there's a lot of things that you have to consider and that is giving up some autonomy and knowing that, you know, um, you know, you're not going to be that point person depending on where you work. Sure, I do have actually a few uh, PA friends who own their own practice and they can have almost extreme autonomy depending on the situation but um, I think that really being able to see how we're utilized and how the relationship between a supervising physician would be important Um, and that sometimes you are the person so if you think it's going to be yeah that's not the case either you still can be sued you still worry you still take a lot of the stress on and you need to it's, it's you know pretty sacred so is autonomy decided by the facility or like California license or like uh, rules, regulations kind of thing? How does that work? Like, could you work in Laguna Beach and, ha- you know, be able to do different things than, you know, you do where you guys are at now? No, not from city to city. It's a mixture of both. It's both national California law and then your facility. Yeah, the facility is kind of, you know, it's it's more or less the nature that you work with with the group. So um, you, each of us, we have a um, kind of um, a delegation of services agreement that you have at any facility that you work with, and that kind of outlines what your responsibilities are. For the most part, I think you can make a generalized statement that our, um, our practice and our um, abilities are within the scope of the practice of the supervising physician we are being supervised by. So, um, for example, if I'm in emergency medicine, I can't sit there and just start a Botox business if that's not what my supervising physician does. So I think you're kind of constrained by that a little bit. Um, and for the most part, you know, there, there are from state to state rules about how many, how much percentage of a practice you can own as a PA. I believe in, in California, it's 49%. So, but you can have a supervising physician um, be the 51% and still be the face of the um, company and things to that nature. So super dependent and very specific based on who you're working with in the state and national regulations. And I actually worked at an urgent care where I did telemedicine on the border in Calexico, and I was completely by myself, and I was fairly new. And all that was required was that I was able to reach my supervising physician by phone and that he signed a certain amount of my charts. But it was, yeah, it was just me. Yeah, there's a lot of rural medicine, or uh, they call them critical access hospitals. Mm -hmm. Um, PAs can work in the emergency department in a critical access hospital, and you have no supervising physician on site, and you are the point person. So it's super dependent on where you are and the type of facility and the state that you're working in. Yeah, we had a good friend who just worked at a place like that in Oklahoma, and he was it. He was running the entire emergency department. Burned out very quickly, the hours. Yeah, so... (laughs) That's, that, that's, a, that's another part about just protecting and knowing and yeah. Yeah. what you're getting into. On that note, are you guys uh, hospital employed or is it like a 1099? We're employed by our physician group. So we are employees, but not of the entire hospital. So technically we're kind of like a contracted, um, we're, we're, we're employed by the physician group, but we work at the hospital. What kind of insights can you give us about uh, locum tenants? We find a lot of providers, uh, doctors pursuing the locums route. Do you guys have any insights on that? I'll defer to Cassandra because I have no experience. Yeah, I have done locums before, and I loved it. And I did some work in Modesto. 
That was the chief place that I worked in an urgent care. And I also worked in Santa Ana at a woman's clinic. I did quite a few rotations through that or jobs through that. Um, it was great. Yeah, it was wonderful. I think it, it was better when I didn't have a permanent job and I was just kind of feeling things out and trying to figure out where I was. But it was a great experience. And I was well paid. From your perspective, what were some of the positives and like the process to become a locum's doctor? I mean, provider. Yeah. Excuse right. me, sorry, Cassandra. Yeah. Excuse yes. Sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. Um, the process, you know, it was just a basic interview, and then they just put me where they needed me, and I loved it because I got to experience a bunch of different places. And it was a short tenure. I think I did two weeks in one, a month in another, and it was great. I just saw how other places operated and saw what was great about these places, what would I would change, and then I found myself where I am now. So. Did that help you decide what you didn't want or what you might want? Yes. Yeah. I wasn't, I didn't love women's health, so I knew that after I worked there. But it was so good because I used a lot of women's health in the emergency department, so it gave me a lot of great experience that I still utilize today. How do you feel, because I know you said you did telemedicine with your locum tenens, how do you feel about telemedicine? I'm, I don't love it. And that's just from my perspective, not from the patients. I think it serves a need that's really valuable because we live in a very busy area. We have a ton of hospitals around, a ton of urgent cares, but there are a lot of places where people just don't have the access. And if they have simpler ailments that can be treated, I think it's great. I love the interaction with the patient and hands-on, and I feel a lot more comfortable with that. To tell you the truth, I felt a little uneasy with it. Have you ever done telemedicine? I haven't, but you know, we see a decent amount of patients that come in and they usually consult their telemedicine doc through their insurance first yeah. and then come into the emergency department. And I, I see like, it's just to me, I think there's limitations with it. And, and I would be probably overreaching and speaking if I tried to speak from it since I don't have the experience, but it does seem like some of the patients that come in are like, for example, overprescribed antibiotics, things like that, because you can't see, touch, feel, or really test anything mm -hmm. with it, or at least the patients that we see that come in and have complications. Yeah. So, but um, maybe that's why maybe yeah. we, uh, you know, in the ER, yeah, we always see, see it once it gets to the bad part. So <laughs> there could be a thousand yeah, people that do great, that had a wonderful experience. Totally. And then we're seeing we the, see the, three that, yeah. yeah. So. Through, a, through a microscope. Yeah. Of, you know, We're the, the complicated fallout. Yeah. How do patients feel about seeing a physician's assistant versus a physician? Sometimes when I've been in the ED on occasion with my kids, it's like a PA comes in and I understand it. Yeah. But what's the initial reaction and how do you handle it with the patient encounter? Well, I very clearly tell everyone that I'm a physician assistant so they know. And I really don't have a problem. Yeah, you know, I, really I agree. I, I very clearly say, you know, I'm Jen Swisher. I'm, I'm going to be your PA or your physician assistant taking care of you today. And I honestly think that you have, um, I've really never come up with a problem with it. And I can almost say that confidently. But I think it's the way that I come across. I think it's how you hold yourself and the confidence. Um, if you can read the room, if somebody is either doesn't understand what you're doing, you know, I kind of explain to them what a PA is. 
Um, I, you know, so you can reassure them. Um, if I'm not sure, I'm, I am wholly confident in saying, you know, I'm not exactly sure what's going on here. So I'm going to go ahead and consult with my supervising physician. I think that sometimes two minds are better than one. And I, I truly meant that when I interviewed in PA school, that that was one of the things I really liked about being a PA over a doctor is that you always had the collaboration. So, um, I mean, what, what patient wouldn't want two different medical brains to be able to weigh in on their case? And that's a really unique situation that you have in the emergency department, having so many people there at the same time and different uh, walks of life and different training backgrounds. Well, and I bet the longer that you're, you know, working, especially with these doctors, I mean, you're learning and pretty soon you'll be there, you know, what, 20 years, whatever, and um, be able to, you know, not even have to consult because you've had so much experience. Yeah, we, we joke that even some of our new docs that we work with that are coming out of training, you know, will go to the 25, 30 year veteran PAs oh, for you like, hey, what oh, do you think sure. about this case? And yeah. so it really is back and forth and collaborative. And, you know, there are several PAs out there that have so much more experience than some of the, the new physicians coming out of medical school. So that's always neat to observe and and have as a dream one day. Yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. <laughs> that you would be. Well, I always say if people feel uncomfortable with PAs, maybe they'll say, well, is the doctor going to come and see me? They're very concerned. They want to feel like their complaint is being taken seriously. And I always say the doctor will absolutely come and see you, but let me just start talking to you right now. And I think through that interaction, because they can tell them that I'm knowledgeable and I recognize their medicines and a lot of times they, they don't even ask for the doctor anymore, but I will always have the doctor go in. At this point in my career, I say the more the better, absolutely. You know, I, I want them to go in. I don't know if they always know more than I do, but if the patient feels more comfortable with that, that's fine. And I think it always winds totally. up. And I don't think any time I've ever had a physician come in after I've seen the patient, have they changed the treatment course or, you know, anything. They usually agree and go, okay, is there anything I can do to, yeah. you know, answer your questions? And, you know, they usually yeah. agree. Yeah. <laughs> And I think it's a little hard to less, well, first of all, more people know about PAs and more people have had positive interactions with PAs. But when I first got out, if somebody saw a PA that they didn't like, it kind of grouped all PAs into the same basket. You wouldn't see a physician and hate all physicians because you saw this one bad one. But if you saw one PA that you didn't get the correct diagnosis or you didn't get along with that maybe in your mind forever after PAs were just a negative experience so we just right work and on I think it's the other side of it too you hear oh like oh yeah I have a PA who takes care of me you know instead of a primary care doctor and they have really yeah. good experiences or I love PAs you guys spend more time with us so um, I think that you know it, it but their patients are a little bit fleeting with it and so they either have a really good like experience yeah. they have no experience or they've had a terrible experience and you're gonna probably about it yeah so what's the practicing like the major practicing difference between a doctor and a PA like what you guys can do and not do well they're always our supervisors I mean they always look over our at our facility it's actually they look over all of our charts technically they sign all of them Um, but and I I think again that's gonna go along the the state dependent facility dependent so technically we can do anything within their scope right as an emergency uh, department PA Um, so yeah at our facility we can pretty much do anything that they do uh, as long as we're being supervised is the the long and short of it so and we're both trained under the medical model Um, I don't know what else would you add to that Cassandra 
prescribe? Well, we don't do as many. Yeah, we can definitely prescribe. Now, do you all have a maximum amount of hours you can work per week? You work in hourly or shifts? How does it schedule? Yeah, I think it's, uh, it depends. So yeah, we, we, they do max us out. They don't want us working more than 16 shifts um, a month because of burnout. Um, you know, our, our, our group is very good about protecting us in that uh, way. But um, each shift has different amounts. So they span from either eight to 10 hour shifts. Um, I work the same um, shift, night shift, three dates a week, three days in a row, and those are nine hour shifts. Um, whereas some, some folks kind of bounce back and forth from nights to days and just do per diem part time, so. Yeah, I'm part-time. I work 10 shifts a month, so it's ideal. (laughs) I love asking this question. Um, So what is one of the most interesting cases that you guys have come across? I'm going to let you go. (laughs) Mm. I have, well, this is kind of a lesson case. When I was first working, I was actually working at a Kaiser facility, and I had a patient come in, and I tell this one a lot to let younger practitioners know to always believe your patient, at least always evaluate their complaint. Because I had a patient come in one time, and she said, everywhere I look, I see the letter E. (laughs) And I thought, oh, maybe this patient is totally crazy. (laughs) Doesn't make any sense. And she said, especially out of my right eye, when I shut my left eye, I can see the letter E. Well, I looked, and she did have a tiny piece of plastic with the letter E that had flown off of a cereal box when she opened it and got in, embedded in her cornea, and she truly could see the letter E everywhere she looked. That's good. I know that's not a very graphic one that people think of the ER, but... No, but it's... It goes you know, to Sometimes show. people, people go tell looking you. for the most bizarre yeah. explanations for something, and sometimes yeah. it's the most simple thing. It's like, no, she really I'm going to work her for a brain tumor yeah, exactly. and send her to psych. No, yeah. she had an Keep actual simple. E. Yeah. <laughs> that's awesome. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Your story know. was good. <laughs> that one? Yeah, you know, it's interesting, because in the emergency department, you um, end up taking care of a lot of psychiatric patients that you don't, you know, you may or, they may or may not come forth with the psychiatric complaints. And I had a guy come in who seemingly cut himself while, you know, cutting up some fruit. I, you know, stitched up his finger. It really, there, there really wasn't much to it until I left for vacation a couple of days later, and I got a phone call from the orthopedic PA. And she asked if I had remembered this patient, and I said, sure. And he said, yeah, he didn't think it was healing well, and he ended up uh, cutting his entire finger off because of the the, the wound not healing well, which it actually was healing just fine. He just happened to have this underlying psych issue, and that he thought the way to take care of it was to just remove the entire finger instead of getting the sutures removed. So um, we ended up finding out that he needed some mental health help and ended up getting it, and he did not present that way initially. But it's one of those cases that always stick with you where you're like, you're not going to ask every patient that comes in psychiatric screening questions, but that was definitely a shocker on vacation. Is it hard? Do you, I'm sure you guys have a lot of hard cases. Uh, How is that bringing that home? What do you guys do to... My hardest case, I mean, especially since becoming a mom, are those the pediatric trauma cases that come in. So um, I think that kind of ranges from the gamuts of accidents that you can easily envision your children being a part of. Um, I think the abuse and neglect cases with kids are really, really hard. Um, I think that I, you know, I talked to Cassandra. <laughs> I talked to my colleagues um, about it because that they're the one person that gets it, you know. And, you, you know, you do your best to try to 
I think the emergency department's a great mirror for your life and being able to know where you're at and be able to appreciate the things that you have. And it's a good reminder for that. Allow yourself to feel all the feels. Um, and then self-care, you know, whether it's just going to get a massage or just relaxing and just making sure that you remember the majority of the cases are positive outcomes, that you're doing a lot of good and a lot of help, and that every once in a while, the nature of the beast is just really, you know, it is what it is, unfortunately. So, Absolutely. yeah. Yeah, I think a part of the thing that I do too is I'm extremely passionate about kind of like preventative things. So um, I try as much as I can to do, you know, injury prevention education with just friends and family, whether it's, you know, proper seatbelt wearing or car seat safety, you know, drowning prevention, immunizations, anything you can prevent from coming to the emergency department, I've become pretty impassioned about and I try to educate friends and family about it because if you know even if just sharing that information with one person prevents them becoming our patients then I feel like that's you know that's what it's all about Cassandra since your husband is a firefighter is he a paramedic too yeah since your husband's a firefighter paramedic do you find yourself talking to him a lot about your cases because he does understand yes and he's the ideal person to talk to talk with about a case because he sees such horrible things and he's had so many bad experiences from an esophageal varices that just bled out in the truck when he was in there and there's nothing you can do I mean there's rarely much you can do in the ER Um, he just gets it he doesn't talk to me about it a lot I just tell him and I think this is one of the things about talking to a colleague you just know the person gets it there's just this feeling like, yes, that's horrible. And sometimes it's not even talking about your emotion about it per se. It's just being able to say it and get it off your chest. And then, because it's almost as if they don't have to, you just know they, yeah, yeah. Just that it's like, oh, just I had this case the other day, you know, and they go, oh man, and and that's it. And it's like, all right, got it off. I was like, that's it. You don't need someone to cry about it or to, you just need to have somebody hear that it hurt you. And then you just, Go on. What are the most common cases you guys see on your shifts during the day and then in evenings? Chest pain, abdominal pain, laceration, stroke, um, flu is coming up. Motor vehicle accidents. But I also work, I work at two facilities and we see a lot of substance abuse and psychiatric cases as well. Do you get a lot of the homeless population in there? Probably not as much as other facilities yeah. do just because of the area that we live in, but we do get a decent amount of um, homeless folks that utilize the facility as a primary care type situation. So we, d- we do get a good amount of that. I worked at Good Samaritan in Los Angeles as one of my first jobs, and that all homeless. <laughs> it was very, it's a different area now, but. Um, compared to that, we see very few homeless in this area. What would you say the biggest difference is between, let's say, a level two, level one trauma center versus one of you guys mentioned critical access as far as the types of patients? Well, if they're going down, they're going to the closest receiving <laughs> facility a lot of times. Right, so, so it's more of a stabilization yeah. when you're at a critical 
access yeah. hospital. It's just stabilizing them in enough to get them to that level one or two trauma center. I think it's a lot scarier to work at the, the critical access places because you're it. We have incredible support. We have trauma surgeons. We have vascular surgeons. We have critical care um, physicians on call all the time. So... It's really easy to get a hold of specialists. You can call, I mean, you get a hold of the neurologist within 30 seconds of calling them. We, you know, for stroke patients, you know, you have the cardiac surgeons in house. So um, I think the critical access hospitals, and that's why people burn out, is you're, you're almost MacGyvering it. You know, you only have so many things you can do to stabilize somebody and ship them out and hope that they make it to the next place. And there's nothing like the feeling of somebody going downhill and you are not the person that can intervene and help that person. Yeah, kind of helplessness. Helplessness. Or, yeah. Do you find yourself a lot of times, because I know uh, the ER is just a, you know, a quick place that patients go to, do you find yourself kind of like following them along, checking on them as they go to different departments? I think we Absolutely. always end up with a handful <laughs> of cases where they're super interesting or they're complicated and you're yeah. just invested in them. And yeah, I always write down the names of them and the next shift I come on or I'll sign on and see how they're doing or how their hospital course was or... Um, you know, when I leave at 3 a.m. for my shift, I always follow up with my doc the next day and go, hey, how did that case turn out? So, yeah, I think some of them you become either invested from a personal level or even just from an academic level and learning from the case. Oh, yeah. And you just want to know what, yeah, and follow them through. Because a lot of times emergency medicine, you have no idea what happened to them. You, I mean, if they're not admitted and they're discharged, there's really, I mean, short of calling the patient themselves and yeah. seeing which how they do. Which I do. Doing. Which, yeah. It's, yeah, it, which, call them. Yeah, it's totally a thing. But, yeah, it's... I think just even curiosity. Yeah. Curiosity is a huge driver. And also to see if you made the right decisions, if there's anything you could have done. That's part of your learning process. Yeah. I have an interesting question. Um, I know originally you were thinking about bringing a male PA in to talk to us as well. Do you find it, is it more common to have women PAs or, you know, are there a lot of men too? I think it's very common to have, I mean, if you just look at my class, there's 50 of us and 40 of us were female. Yeah. Um, however, I think it's starting to become more of a first choice for um, males going into medicine too. But um, our our group that we work with is actually, there's a, we have yeah. a decent amount of guys with yeah. us. So, I think that a lot of women have discovered that PA is a way to be in medicine and still have a work-life balance. Yeah, I absolutely. Agree. Yeah, I think, yeah. Uh, you know, as much as, like, I, I think women can do anything, and there's so many amazing female surgeons and physicians and everything, I was just really encouraged by um, the docs that I worked with as a scribe, that they, you know, they watched a lot of their female counterparts struggle with having families and starting their personal lives, and they're like, you know, you really do get to do pretty much what we do as a PA, um, but you don't have to be in school as long, um, and you can kind of get your life started a little bit sooner if that's what you know you want to do, and, you know, you, you, once you're working, you have that opportunity to either be part-time or to not take on full responsibilities of running your own practice or being a partner per se, but still reaping the benefits of, you know, collaborating, learning, practicing medicine, treating, diagnosing, prescribing. Mm -hmm. So you have to really love the medicine part of it because you're never going to make as much money and you're never going to have the same status. And you need to know that about yourself. And I tell people, cause we work with scribes, I feel like three-fourths of them want to be PAs now. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and they always say, you know, what's good about being a PA, what's not? And I just tell them completely straight out. Those are the things you're going to have to trade off. So 
Yeah, you're definitely not in it for the money. It's not that we don't get paid well and we're not compensated well, but it's definitely not a motivating driver for it. I think it's the wanting to help others and really practice medicine. Are you all allowed to write prescriptions? Yep. I think they're technically in California called drug orders, but they're on the same prescription pad, but it's just one way to separate the difference. But yeah, you can call in a prescription and write one. And you just take an, uh, in California, you take an extra controlled substance course in order to be able to write uh, for controlled substances. And so it's a, it's a separate um, certification that you get. So for all those people thinking about becoming PAs, um, what advice would you guys um, give and, uh, you know, just kind of motivate them and, uh, and also, uh, PA school, like any that you recommend? Well, USC. (laughs) (laughs) We're a little biased. We're both (laughs) Trojans. So, um, you know, I, I have joked about, um, I've joked about it, but I've also become very serious. I think there's, um, there's, 2020 vision in hindsight. And I'd say if I were to do it all over again, and as much as I love USC and how great of an education it was, it is not cheap. And most PA schools, especially in Southern California, are not um, not affordable. Um, there, A lot of them are through private schools and it's very expensive. And so I'd say if I could do it all over again, um, I would have applied to be a National Health Service Corps um, uh, scholar, essentially, or you know, applied for either the scholarship or the loan repayment. Um, because you do end up with a hefty amount of loans when you come out. And if you don't have a plan for paying them down, that can kind of set you back. And so um, I, you know, I, I think I had my eye on the prize and I knew I never wanted to do primary care and family medicine, which is where a lot of those National Health Service Corps people um, dedicate their area to either underserved rural area uh, or critical access type place for a nonprofit. And I didn't want to go into family medicine. And so I poo-pooed that and just wanted to get straight into surgery. And then I, I, you know, I fell into emergency medicine. Whereas if I were looking back, I wish I would have just dedicated those three years after I graduated. It goes by so quickly. And it would be I know such it, incredible experience. Right. And I know PA school and medical school, it's like you're all practicing delayed gratification. But reality is when you look back at hindsight, three years is nothing in the grand scheme of it if it pays off your entire school loan debt. You yeah, know, so. That would be nice. Yeah. So I know. Because I know it looms over here a lot of our heads. In the Bahamas. Right totally, because it's like you know you do. I mean, especially if you go to a private school, you're taking out almost the amount of loans that a physician is without getting paid like a physician, yeah. and so um, I think that's something that people don't look into uh, when they go, you know, go into PA school. So yeah, yeah. if I were well, to I do it again, they're so happy to be in yeah, PA in school it. that they don't think of you it. You put your blinders on, yeah. you just put your head down. You're you're working so hard yeah. while you're there, and you're not thinking about the end goal and what your life's going to look like in five to ten years after you graduate. So, yeah. So once you graduate, kind of different than doctors, do you guys have to do kind of a residency or fellowship or anything, or you're just, you can go straight into working? You do it during school, um, and it's not really a residency, but people do residencies There now. are a there couple are a lot specialized of um, ones you can, there, there's actually ER one. ER surgery. Yeah, there's one for ER surgery, women's health, um, neonatology. So you can go and get those jobs, but actually it was recommended, or sorry, the residency programs. It was recommended to me, though, if you really wanted to subspecialize, is to just get hired by that either surgeon or physician and have them train you when you get out of school. So that way you're actually getting paid um, like a practicing PA versus the um, probably half the amount in a residency program doing twice the work. Yeah. Well, thank you guys so much for. Do you have any other questions, Chris? Were you gonna no, ask? This has been great. Yeah. 
Um, thank you so much for letting us pick your brains on all things PA. You're our first PAs we've had on the podcast. Yay! <laughs> Representing. Hopefully yeah, Hopefully we're no. not the last. And we'd love to have you guys, you know, back in again and hear some more crazy cases. So start taking note when you... I even want to do a podcast that's just like a series on it that's just like crazy cases. So, yeah, I'll start um, them down. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you so much. No problem. Thank you to all our listeners. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes air, make sure to hit that subscribe button. And thank you to Pacific Companies. Without you guys, this podcast would not be possible. If you'd like to be a guest or for more information, go to www.pacificcompanies.com.